0: Far and away the most stunning thing about Milton's Paradise Lost is the presentation of the character of Satan. And this has led to endless debates about the poem, about the purpose that John Milton has in writing this poem, and whose side he's really on. Because when you read the first two books of Paradise Lost, you can't help but notice the fairly evident and obvious fact that Satan is written as the traditional epic hero. Not only that, but he's also the world's greatest possible underdog. And who doesn't love the story? of an underdog rising above their circumstances. And what American, by the way, doesn't love the story of a freedom fighter fighting against tyranny. For these and so many other reasons in the text, many of which we will read today, Satan is often read as the hero of this poem. And that's really bizarre. Like I don't have to tell you how strange it is for a Puritan poet in the 1600s to dare to write this character in this way. Milton's stated purpose at the beginning of Book One is to justify the ways of God to men. And then he immediately leaps into the perspective of God's great enemy. We've already begun to speculate As to why that is, in particular, last time when we were introduced to the children of Satan, sin and death, we began to speculate about the reasons why Milton might choose to conjure up such dark and horrifying visions before our eyes at the beginning of our reading. We need, for example, to understand the origins of evil, and we need those origins to be distinct and separate from God's creation. And maybe, well, maybe there's something else. Maybe there's some other, deeper reason why Milton chooses so deliberately, so flagrantly, to put the reader into the position of sympathizing with the devil himself. Today, that devil is going to make good his escape from hell. We're a ways into book two, close to the end of it, actually, on about line 815. Satan has just finished learning the backstory of this snaky sorceress who keeps the key to the gates of hell. This backstory is disturbing, horrifying, and truly upsetting to the reader and maybe even to Satan. But if it is upsetting to Satan, he doesn't show it. While he was, just now, ready to murder both of these characters in order to get through these gates, now that he understands his relationship to them, knows them a little bit better, and knows what they want. He's going to change his tone significantly. She finished. And the subtle fiend, his lore soon learned, now milder, and thus answered smooth. Dear daughter, since thou claimest me for thy sire, and my fair son here show'st me. The dear pledge of dalliance with thee had in heaven, and joys then sweet, now sad to mention, through dire change befallen us unforeseen, unthought of. No, I come no enemy, but to set free from out of this dark and dismal house of pain both him and thee, and all the heavenly host of spirits, that, in our just pretenses armed, fell with us from on high. From them I go, this uncouth errant soul, and, one for all, myself expose, with lonely steps to tread the unfounded deep, and through the void immense to search with wandering quest, a place foretold should be. And, by concurring signs, ere now created vast and round, a place of bliss in the purlieus of heaven, and therein placed a race of upstart creatures, to supply perhaps our vacant room, though more removed, lest heaven surcharged with potent multitude might have to move new broils. Be this, or ought then this more secret, now designed, I haste to know. And this once known shall soon return, and bring ye to the place where thou and death shall dwell at ease and up and down unseen wing silently the buxom air embalmed with odors there ye shall be fed and filled immeasurably all things shall be your prey he ceased for both seemed highly pleased and death grinned horrible a ghastly smile, to hear his famine should be filled, and blessed his ma destined to that good hour, no less rejoiced his mother bad, and thus bespake her sire. The key of this infernal pit, by due and by command of heaven's all-powerful king, I keep By him forbidden to unlock these adamantine gates. Against all force, death ready stands to interpose his dart, Fearless to be o'ermatched by living might. But what owe I to his commands above, Who hates me, and hath thither thrust me Down into this gloom of tartarus profound To sit in hateful office here confined, Inhabitant of heaven and heavenly-born, here in perpetual agony and pain, with terrors and with clamors compassed round of my own brood that on my bowels feed. Thou art my father, thou my author, thou my being gavest me. Whom should I obey? But thee whom follow, Thou wilt bring me soon to that new world of light and bliss among the gods who live at ease, where I shall reign at thy right hand, voluptuous as beseems thy daughter and thy darling without end. Thus saying, from her side. The fatal key, sad instrument of all our woe, she took, and towards the gate rolling her bestial train, forthwith the huge portcullis high up drew, which but herself, not all the Stygian powers could once have moved. Then, in the keyhole, turns the intricate wards, and every bolt and bar of massy iron or solid rock with ease unfastens. On a sudden open fly with impetuous recoil and jarring sound the infernal doors. And on their hinges great harsh thunder that the lowest bottom shook of Erebus. She opened but to shut her power. The gates wide open stood, that with extended wings a bannered host, under spread ensigns marching, might pass through with horse and chariots ranked in loose array. So wide they stood, and like a furnace-mouth cast forth redounding smoke and ruddy flame. Before their eyes, in sudden view, appear the secrets of the hoary deep, a dark, illimitable ocean without bound, without dimension, where length, breadth, and height, and time and place are lost. Where eldest night and chaos, ancestors of nature, hold eternal anarchy amidst the noise of endless wars, and by confusion stand. For hot, cold, moist, and dry, four champions fierce strive here for mastery, and to battle bring their embryon They, around the flag of each his faction, in their several clans, light-armed or heavy, sharp, smooth, swift, or slow, swarm a populace, unnumbered as the sands of Barca or Cyrene's torrid soil, levied to side with warring winds and poised their lighter wings. Let me interrupt. I'm sorry. I have to interrupt Milton here because I think I'm I'm getting kind of carried away uh, with the poetry and and really I mean how could you not it sweeps you completely off your feet or at least it does me I read this and and I'm just completely blown away uh, but I know that for for many of you you're reading it for the first time and so maybe you're, you're starting to get a little bit lost uh, well first of all that is kind of the idea Satan himself is is looking up into the abyss of chaos and night that exists out in the universe, and it, we would be forgiven for like not fully comprehending what it is that's going on here, because that's kind of the point. Like, It's the chaotic void. It is, by definition, incomprehensible to any sort of organized being other than perhaps God. In fact, God reaches into this place to choose out the elemental matter necessary for creation. You see, in Milton, God, the creator, is really an organizer of existing matter, and that existing matter is here in this realm of night and chaos. This is one of the ways that Milton kind of flexibly blends Christian ideas and theology with classical mythology. In ancient Greece, the idea was that that everything began with chaos and night, and that out of chaos and night came the earth as we know it, Gaia, and the heavens, Uranus, and then from Gaia and Uranus came other beings that then led to, eventually, the creation of everything that we know. In Milton, we get a vivid description of what that night and chaos is like, because in Milton, that night and chaos still exists. It's kind of like a buffer zone in between hell and God's created universe. And so it's this chaotic void that Satan is going to have to traverse in order to get out of hell and find God's created universe. That's why Milton jumps into this description so vividly. But before we get to that, I do want to give you one second to jump back to these previous descriptions here of the end of that conversation with the snaky sorceress, And the shapeless shape. Both of them seem very pleased by what Satan offers them. Satan realizes what they lack, and that's what he immediately promises them. He sees that death is starving for prey. Death wants to destroy, and that's his one unsatisfied need. He's sitting here at the gates of hell, and there's nothing for him to kill. And so Satan says, Hey, if you let me through these gates, I'm going to go mess up an entire race of God's creation, and then I'll come back and you can have Adam. Death grins that ghastly smile because, of course, that's what he wants. Satan's able to convince sin just as easily. All we have to do is imply that there's no real good reason to obey God, a God who put her into such a horrible situation here at the gates of hell holding the key. As we've already talked about, that is such a Mind game for God to play. And it's so terrifying the existence that sin is in here. And so, really, just looking at Satan and realizing Satan is her father, Satan is her creator. Who else should she obey? That's enough to get her to use this key to open the gates. Well, the opening of the gates is so dramatic, but it just gives way to this incredible vision of what I was just talking about, that night and chaos in between hell and God's created universe, where all these elements are continually at war with each other. So let's jump back into that description. Sorry to slow you down. Looks like about 905 is where we'll jump right in. To whom these most adhere, he rules a moment. Chaos umpire sits, and by decision, more embroils the fray by which he reigns. Next him, high arbiter chance governs all. So you see this, this realm is governed by these gods who are by definition unpredictable and chaotic. Um, Literally the god Chaos is the umpire of everything that goes on here. And so everything is by definition totally chaotic. There is no order, no structure whatsoever. It's just a complete jumbled mess. Chance is right there next to chaos, ensuring that there is no order. Everything happens according solely to chance. Into this wild abyss, the womb of nature, and perhaps her grave, of neither sea nor shore nor air nor fire, but all these in their pregnant causes mixed confusedly, and which thus must ever fight unless the almighty maker, them ordain his dark materials to create more worlds. Into this wild abyss, the wary fiend stood on the brink of hell and looked awhile, pondering his voyage, for no narrow frith he had to cross. Nor was his ear less peeled with noises loud and ruinous, to compare great things with small, than when Bellina storms with all her battering engines bent to raise some capital city. Or less than if this frame of heaven were falling, and these elements in mutiny had from her axle torn the steadfast earth. At last, his sail broad fans he spreads for flight. And in the surging smoke uplifted, spurns the ground. Thence, many a league, as in a cloudy chair, ascending, rides audacious. I gotta say, this description is so cinematic there's something about the quality of this visually that is just so incredibly effective you've got the gates of hell which already is so dramatic the way that they open on these massive hinges uh milton even lets you see into the mechanism of the lock when sin turns the key but then after those gates open you you get this vision of satan sin and death Standing there at these open gates, looking up into this vast abyss of chaos, and it is just unfathomable. The vision of what can exist in the universe, something that no human being has ever seen. It's just incredible to imagine Satan standing there and thinking, I'm jumping in to that When you think about what he's risking here, it's almost unbelievable. When when he decides that he's gonna jump into the chaotic void, he's risking his entire being. It's quite possible that in that chaotic void, he will immediately and permanently be lost forever. That he himself might actually disintegrate into these elements and cease to be. And yet, his pondering only takes a moment. And then he spreads his huge wings. He looks straight into that abyss. And then, boom, his feet leave the ground. And off he shoots into the chaotic void. kind of moving. The audacity of it. It really is just so impressive. But it doesn't last for long because unfortunately within this chaotic void, there is no stable air in which to fly. And that's why that seat soon failing meets a vast vacuity. All unawares, fluttering his penions' vein, plumb down he drops ten thousand fathom deep. And to this hour, down had been falling, had not by ill chance the strong rebuff of some tumultuous cloud, instinct with fire and nitre, hurried him as many miles aloft. That fury stayed, quenched in a boggy cirrus, Neither sea, nor good dry land. Nigh foundered, on he fares, treading the crude consistence, half on foot, half flying. Behooves him now both oar and sail. As when a griffin through the wilderness with winged course or hill or moory dale pursues the arimaspian who by stealth had from his wakeful custody purloined the guarded gold, so eagerly the fiend or bog or steep through straight, rough, dense or rare with head, hands, wings or feet pursues his way and swims or sinks or wades or creeps or flies. At length, the universal hubbub wild, stunning sounds and voices all confused, borne through the hollow dark, assaults his ear with loudest vehemence. Thither he plies undaunted, to meet there whatever power or spirit of the nethermost abyss might in that noise reside, of whom to ask which way the nearest coast of darkness lies bordering on light. When straight, behold, the throne of chaos and his dark pavilion spread wide on the wasteful deep. With him enthroned sat sable-vested knight, eldest of things, the consort of his reign. And by them stood Orcus and Aedes and the dreaded name of Demogorgon. Rumor next and chance and tumult and confusion all embroiled and discord with a thousand various mouths. Well, so we're getting to what is the most structured part of this chaotic void, and that is the pavilion on which these gods rule. You notice that Satan kind of gets here just by sheer good luck. Or as Milton says, bad luck. Satan was trying to fly through this void, but there was no air, and so he began to fall. But then as he was falling, there was an explosion, randomly. And this random explosion propelled Satan back up. All of a sudden he finds himself in water and he's kind of swimming. It would be really nice if he had a boat, Milton says. But now he's just wading because all of a sudden it's not that deep. And then he's walking around and now he's flying again because the elements continually change around him. This is the ultimate triathlon and Satan, of course, well, he's ready for this. He can fly. He can swim. He can hold his breath forever. He can survive an explosion because he was created by God as one of the highest and most powerful angels in heaven. And that power appears to be on display here, along with his absolutely indomitable will are what makes him so inspiring and so tragic a character well Satan he's proud right his, his uh, sin is pride but he's not too proud to ask for directions Satan sees chance and rumor and tumult and confusion and discord these gods of the chaotic void and he heads on over to ask them how the heck he's supposed to get out of here. To whom Satan turning boldly thus. Ye powers and spirits of this nethermost abyss, chaos and ancient night, I come no spy with purpose to explore or to disturb the secrets of your realm, but by constraint, wandering this darksome desert, as my way lies through your spacious empire up to light, alone and without guide, half lost i seek what readiest path leads where your gloomy bounds confine with heaven or if some other place from your dominion one the ethereal king possesses lately thither to arrive i travel this profound direct my course directed no mean recompense it brings to your behoof if i that region lost all usurpation thence expelled reduced to her original darkness and your sway, which is my present journey. And once more, erect the standard there of ancient night. Yours be the advantage all, mine the revenge. Thus, Satan. right, so that's what Satan said. I'm trying to find God's created universe in order to destroy it. What's in it for you, Chaos? Well, you get some territory back. How does that sound? Can you help me find this place? And him... Thus the Anarch Old, with faltering speech and visage incomposed, answered,
1: I know thee, stranger, who thou art, that mighty leading angel, who of late made head against heaven's king, though overthrown. I saw and heard, for such a numerous host fled not in silence through the frightened deep, with ruin upon ruin, rout on rout, confusion worse confounded, and heaven gates poured out by millions her victorious bands pursuing, Why upon my frontiers here deep residence. If all I can will serve that little which is left so to defend, encroached on still through our intestine broils, weakening the sceptre of old night. First hell, your dungeon, stretching far and wide beneath. Now lately, heaven and earth, another world, hung over my realm, linked in a golden chain to that side heaven from whence your legions fell. If that way be your walk, you have not far, so much the nearer danger. Go, and speed! Havoc, and spoil, and ruin are my game!
0: He ceased. And Satan stayed not to reply, but glad that now his seas should find ashore with fresh alacrity and force renewed, springs upward like a pyramid of fire into the wild expanse, and through the shock of fighting elements on all sides round environed, wins his way harder beset, and more endangered than when Argo passed through Bosphorus betwixt the jostling rocks, or when Ulysses on the larboard shunned Charybdis and by the other whirlpool steered. So he, with difficulty and labor hard, moved on. With difficulty and labor he. But he once passed, Soon after, when man fell, strange alteration. Sin and death, I mean, following his track, such was the will of heaven, paved after him a broad and beaten way over the dark abyss, whose boiling gulf tamely endured a bridge. Of wondrous length. From hell continued. Reaching the utmost orb of this frail world. By which the spirits perverse. With easy intercourse pass to and fro. To tempt or punish mortals. Except whom God and good angels guard. By special grace. So you see right there. Satan. Written. Explicitly as the hero of this poem. I mean, that is totally unambiguous. He is directly compared to the Argo. Argo as in Jason and the Argonauts, the heroes of the Quest of the Golden Fleece. He is explicitly compared to Ulysses, that great Greek hero, who we may know as Odysseus, the one whose incredibly epic journey home from the Trojan War provides the subject matter of the Odyssey, that great heroic epic. Satan, through difficulty and labor, proves his merit and worth as he takes on this heroic journey. What is a classical hero but someone who comes to themselves in a mundane world and receives a call to adventure, crosses the threshold and encounters danger and difficulty in order to achieve their destined goal. And does Satan achieve it? We're on line 1035. But now, at last, the sacred influence of light appears. And from the walls of heaven shoots far into the bosom of dim night a glimmering dawn. Here nature first begins her farthest verge and chaos to retire as from her outmost works a broken foe. With tumult less and with less hostile din, That Satan with less toil and now with ease Wafts on the calmer wave by dubious light And like a weather-beaten vessel holds gladly the port Though shrouds and tackle torn Or in the emptier waste resembling air Weighs his spread wings At leisure to behold far off the imperial heaven Extended wide in circuit undetermined square or round, with opal towers and battlements adorned of living sapphire once his native seat, and fast by hanging in a golden chain this pendant world in bigness as a star of smallest magnitude close by the moon. Thither, full fraught with mischievous revenge, accursed, and in a cursed hour, he hies. The beauty of this moment Stands out all the more dramatically against the dark and horrifying chaotic background of books one and two. At the very end of book two, Satan has returned to the realms of light from which he fell. He sees heaven, the Empyrean, this place which up until just nine or ten days ago was his home. And hanging from heaven on a little golden chain is this brand new place. The earth. I can't help but think about Carl Sagan's beautiful description of a photograph that was taken by a spacecraft called Voyager 1. This was back in the 1970s and a much earlier era of space exploration. And the United States sent off a couple of probes to take pictures of some of the great gas giants. Jupiter, Jupiter, Saturn, Uranus and Neptune. Well, just as one of these probes was almost out of reach in terms of our ability to manipulate it to tell it what to do, Carl Sagan, who was part of the team, said, "Let's turn the camera around and point it back at Earth." And uh, everybody was like, "Why? There's no scientific reason we should do that." And and Sagan persisted until they finally agreed. They turned the thing around, wasting some precious resources, and took a picture of Earth from very, very far into the distant solar system. Earth was nothing but a couple of pixels. The picture is really grainy and small. Take a look at it if you can. It's just this little dot in the middle of a beam of light, a little lens flare or something. there's something really majestic in the way that Carl Sagan described it.
2: From this distant vantage point, the earth might not seem of any particular interest. But for us, it's different. Consider again that dot. That's here. That's home. That's us. On it, everyone you love, everyone you know everyone you ever heard of, every human being who ever was, lived out their lives. The aggregate of our joy and suffering, thousands of confident religions, ideologies, and economic doctrines, every hunter and forager, every hero and coward, every creator and destroyer of civilization, every king and peasant, every young couple in love, every mother and father, hopeful child, inventor and explorer, every teacher of morals, every corrupt politician, every superstar, every supreme leader, every saint and sinner in the history of our species lived there on the moat of dust suspended in a sunbeam. The earth is a very small stage in a vast cosmic arena. How eager they are to kill one another, how fervent their hatreds. Our posturings, our imagined self importance, the delusion that we have some privileged position in the universe, are challenged by this point of pale light. Our planet is a lonely speck in the great enveloping cosmic dark. In our the only home we've ever known.
0: The beauty and the fragility of this incredible planet on which we live, floating out in space, that's the vision that we end Book 2 with. Satan making a beeline for that pale blue dot next time the poem is going to flip upside down yet again returning us to the perspective of the poet Milton and he is going to bring us up to the perspective of God. As blasphemous as books one and two have perhaps been, the book three takes it to the next level because God himself has lines, like monologues. We are going to get explicitly the perspective of God within the context of this story. And hopefully he's gonna have some compelling answers for some of the mysteries that Milton has begun to explore in his poem.